welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te Swetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmikulu. And this week's text takes place in the UK. So no land acknowledgement this week, although lots and lots of conversations about race and movement mm-hmm. and transgressing borders. So that's something. There we go. Yeah. And Brenna, we should acknowledge that we have a special returning guest on this episode. So welcome back, Brennan. How you doing? Hello, hello, hello. I am doing great. And actually, when when the two of you started doing land acknowledgements on the podcast, I remember you saying something like, oh, you know, any of our North American listeners will, will have been familiar with this. They'll have heard of this. You know, they're kind of used to this. You shouldn't, no. have, you shouldn't have been so kind as to include the U.S. in that. Oh, no. Because I'd never even heard the phrase land acknowledgement oh, wow. in my entire life. Oh, wow. Oh, Interesting. It, we just don't have the idea of a land acknowledgement structured into our society in any way. Not to say that we're not aware of our Native American mm-hmm. history. A lot of people aren't. But like, especially my school was built on the former lands of a Native American tribe. And they do acknowledge that and do outreach and have cultural events and stuff. But we've never had anything even close to like a codified land acknowledgement in any sort of, you know event or things like that right oh that's so interesting i think joe and i spent too much time in universities yeah perhaps we've got a a skewed sense of what everybody's up to i think sometimes or Mm -hmm. maybe it's just more of a canadian thing because i would say in the u.s having been to a lot of you know universities and events and things it's just it's just never happened that's fascinating it is i would say it's something that's come online definitely in the last 10 years people have started doing it as a matter of course Mm-hmm. And that, of course, comes with all the all the issues around like making it meaningful and not having it just be like a rote practice, which is something Joe yes. and I really struggle with here because, um, yeah, it's we we feel like it's important to recognize territory and history and something we talk about a lot is how placeless a lot of settler YA is and how that contrasts with a lot of other communities. But yeah, it's definitely. It's definitely been the last 10 years here in Canada that we've seen it become the norm, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, sorry. I just I just think it's really interesting. And every time you open, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is a thing. This is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. I honestly, I, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated to learn that. So that's really cool. Yeah. And just as a bit of a cue, if you want to know where you are living and whose mm-hmm. land you are living on, you can always go to nativelands. Is it com or ca, Brenna? It's nativeland, singular, uh, dot ca. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Because that's actually how we end up pulling a lot of the land acknowledgement for the show, which is why it becomes problematic that one time it went down and we were like, oh my God. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> It's true because, you know, that website, once we have the community, the territory, we can then go and look up their website, check pronunciations, do all that stuff. But without that first place to start, it's actually really Mm -hmm. hard to find that information. Native Land is doing a huge service for this kind of work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, And for the record, it's Native hyphen Land. 
It is, yes. We'll we'll put a link in the show notes so that people can find <laughs> it a little more easily. It, we've done a great job. This is good. This is good work. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it takes three people to do this podcast now. <laughs> yeah. And for the record, I'm recording from the native territorial lands of the Tongva tribe. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, Brennan. You're welcome. So, Brennan, we haven't talked to you in quite some time. No, I missed you guys. You said that you've been doing quite a lot of YA reading lately. Oh, yeah. I mean, not that I don't in general, but June was Pride Month. And as much as I don't even like to acknowledge Pride Month, because for me, it's Pride mm-hmm. Lifetime. Yep. Um, I did kind of make a goal of just reading as much queer young adult fiction as I could in June, and I accomplished it. <laughs> nice. Okay. Do you have any, like, standout recommendations? Yeah. Um. Real quick, I have a, I will make this so brief, but I have a list of five. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Okay, cool, cool. A lot of them, uh, one, two, three of them are books that came out in June or May of this year. Oh, nice. So those ones would be Jay's Gay Agenda by Jason June. Um, that one takes place in Seattle. It reminded me of Darius the Great is Not Okay in terms of uh, the, mm, the prose favorite. style. Mm-hmm. I would say that Darius the Great is probably better. That's so good. It's still the peak, right? Yeah, exactly. But it it reminded me of that in terms of the prose, in terms of the way the character approaches the world, because this character is very much like a organized list maker, and so it's got this kind of organizational gimmick that I really enjoyed. And then the the Passing Playbook by Isaac Fitzsimons. Mm. It's about a black trans boy who is on the soccer team, and yeah, I I just I I really really enjoyed that one because there were two sports related trans stories that came out this month the other one was um may the best man win and that one did not work didn't do it for you (laughs) i found that one to be really angry and violent in ways that are totally probably natural to certain people's experience but felt Mm -hmm. really really bitter to read okay and basically okay skip ahead 15 seconds but spoiler alert like a major decision point of the third act is whether or not the character is going to bash somebody's head in with a table oh wow oh and that was that was not the rom-com i was expecting (laughs) (laughs) but okay i also recommend i i just started reading so i'm not finished with this one but the darkness outside us by elliot schreffer which is about gays in space so love it okay and then i'll be the one by lila lee it's a kind of K-pop American Idol type competition show star- uh, about a bisexual Korean American teen. Mm. And then The Love Curse of Melody McIntyre, which is about a stage manager um, and her... Oh, I feel like we've talked about that one. Uh, oh, good. Oh, sorry. Maybe I missed that conversation. But yeah, that one's by Robin Talley. Yeah, I think we briefly touched on it as an upcoming title because it sounded very fun. It's like she she's really good at her job as a stage manager, but terrible in love, right? Yes, and they have this tradition of doing these kind of superstitions mm-hmm. for each show. And the superstition for that show is that she's not allowed to date anyone because her ex like ruined the show by breaking up with her in the middle of a big moment. Right. But of course she falls in love with the girl who's playing Fontaine in Les Miserables, so it's a whole thing. And it, it was very cute. Well, that's a great mix of different subjects and perspectives, Brennan. I do my best to, to read diversely. 
<laughs> Amazing. And Myrna, we haven't done this ourselves in a while. I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, do you have any homework that you've been catching up on or doing? Like Brennan, I used June to read queerly. Not that I don't. Otherwise, I tend to, in June, try to only read either books by queer writers or books by Indigenous writers, since it's also National Indigenous Peoples Month. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of adult fiction this June. Sometimes I have to because I get hungover from the show. But I did read <laughs> one really great YA title that, Joe, you actually teased way back in the day when we used to do preview episodes. Mm-hmm. It's Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, how was that? That one seemed... Oh, so good. It's so, it's so good. <laughs> so Case and Calendar is a really good writer, uh, a Stonewall and Lambda award-winning writer for previous titles really talented. But this story, there's something about this protagonist. So Felix Love, and yeah, that's his actual name, um, is a <laughs> trans boy, and he's black, and he goes to a really elite private art school, and he's trying to get a scholarship to the Rhode Island School of Design. And, you know, he's got a circle of friends, small but tight, and he's relatively out and open with his school community. But everything sort of changes for him and his sense of comfort when um, he gets dead named publicly. Oh. Someone anonymously fills the lobby of the school with pictures of what? Felix from before he transitioned. Oh, no. So he comes up with a plan for revenge that okay. involves <laughs> a whole catfishing scenario situation hmm. thing and so what i liked about this book is that it it does open with this really traumatic and upsetting experience but it doesn't live there it really is about felix coming to a place of comfort again with his school community and there's a great love story and there's a really hilarious revenge plot um and at times it's really stressful and upsetting but for the most part it's just a very joyful book so yeah, I totally recommend it. Uh, Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. It's a strong recommend from me. And I read it fast. I read it in like a day and a half because I really had to know what happened. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's good. I like anything with a catfish plot, I'm realizing, actually, as I like, <laughs> Apparently. descend into my my white, middle-aged, suburban mom identity, really loving a catfish narrative. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, so listeners, you know what your homework <laughs> is now. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, please, all your best catfish. I was going to say, it's recommendations for texts that use catfishing, not catfish, Brenna. Please. <laughs> oh, uh, although, <dear>. anyway, <laughs> it's really good. Definitely read it. It only came out last year, but it's easy to find. And I noticed that a lot of places had it. Uh, it had the ebook on sale in the last few weeks. So check it out. Nice. Okay. So good recommendations from both of you. But... I think that we should talk about the text in question. Which, by the way, Brennan suggested and apparently uh, didn't hey, like. <laughs> I did not suggest. I picked it out of the list that Joe showed to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, it was already in your schedule, and I just kind of hopped in because I wanted to talk to you guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very fair. So before we get into greetings from Barry Park slash Blinded by the Light, I just wanted to give a shout out that this was a recommendation from listener Andrew. So they asked us to cover this. I believe it was in fall of last year. So we mm -hmm. are 
just now getting around to it as we sort of hinted at this title was actually a little difficult to track down in Canada so yeah it didn't get Canadian distribution so after having my order cancelled by like three slightly sketchy online booksellers I finally did get my hands on a copy with Joe's help but yeah it didn't have Canadian distribution and I have no idea why Hmm. but yeah so I guess do we want to give a little It's hard, right? Because this isn't a straight adaptation. We should say that off the top. The book Mm -hmm. is a memoir and quite a sprawling one. And the movie is a fictionalization written by the same author of the same story, but definitely not a straightforward adaptation. No, quite a bit more streamlined, a little bit more conventional. It's not even a YA book in a way, right? Like it's an adult memoir that takes place significantly during the teen years. Yeah. So it's uh, Greetings from Beery Park, Race, Religion, Rock and Roll by Sarfraz Manzur. And Sarfraz is a writer uh, and a broadcaster in the UK. And he's known for making a pretty famous documentary about his community of Beery Park. And this book is like, how he came to be but more than anything it's like a memoir of his father and his relationship with his father Mm -hmm. and the ways in which his father's sometimes strong sometimes less strong connection with islam and sarfraz's own connection to bruce springsteen sort of connect and also kind of push them apart so it's really a father-son story and yeah it's not a straightforward ya it's very much an adult man looking back at his life kind of narrative Mm mm-hmm I mean, anybody who's familiar with the text knows that it's very heavily indebted to the influence of Bruce Springsteen. I do think it's the kind of book that you will get more out of if you're a fan of The Boss and some of Mm -hmm. his music. I like that each chapter opens with lyrics to help you, I guess, contextualize the... I don't even know what to call them. Do we call them chapters? Do we call them kind of vignettes? Mm. Yeah, I would say vignettes. Okay, so... Each of these vignettes has a bit of a thematic center. So it's, you know, here's something about my dad. Here's something about religion. Here's something about sex. Here's something about racism. And Mm -hmm. I found that there was a formula to the way that Sarfraz writes in which each of these vignettes will sort of say, here's the way that my dad approached this thing. This is how I rebelled. And then now that I'm an adult, I recognize what my dad was trying to do and I've kind of come around to it. And then you repeat that eight times. It's sort of, I think, structured that way in part because a central through line of this book is that Sarfraz's father, spoiler alert, dies before he can ever have these actual conversations with him. So Mm -hmm. his father dies before he sees him achieve any kind of success in Britain. And his father dies before they resolve any of the tension between themselves. So in many ways, this book is like a writing through of grief and like a writing through to the other side of a relationship with his father. And so sometimes it can feel like a one-sided conversation for that reason, Mm -hmm. where he's trying to understand what his dad would say or feel or think in a situation but he's ultimately guessing right because he's never going to have the opportunity to have that conversation Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and and, here's the thing well first of all i would say not to immediately just like take joe's basketball and slam it to the ground (laughs) but i'm someone who is like a legacy bruce springsteen fan (laughs) 
I wouldn't call myself a fan, but my dad is a fan. He actually was just tweeting with Safraz Mansour. Oh, oh my really? god! Yeah, so like there, he's like at that level, and so I, I grew up kind of permeated in the Bruce Springsteen culture. Nice. And I would say that knowing about it does not in any way aid your understanding of the book or the film. Okay, okay. <laughs> this stuff is very, very Bruce 101. It's not giving you anything other than the absolute basics about Bruce Springsteen. And that's not a problem. It's just that if you're like, oh, maybe this will help aid my understanding of the book, it, it won't. <laughs> okay. I think that the book, in terms of, Joe, what you were saying, like in terms of the very loose narrative structure yes i think it tells a solid story about his relationship with his dad but i think it frankly fails to enlighten us as to why bruce springsteen has been chosen as kind of the guiding principle of the book i never felt like that connection was made for me hmm. I wonder if part of it is that the book is for a british audience which isn't to suggest that British people don't know who Bruce Springsteen is, but definitely that like, it's as much a book about the fact that he loves Springsteen as it is a book about being the weird person who loves the thing that nobody else seem around you seems to understand. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, you know, oh, it's a bit of a fish out of water story, right? And I guess we haven't said this, but like, the book is about kind of growing up as a Pakistani Muslim in Britain, mm -hmm. particularly in Britain in the late 70s early to mid 80s, the period of the sort of rise of skinhead culture, the National Front. And, you know, Springsteen is like this really interesting foil in that regard, because I think a lot of, well, we see it all the time, right? Like every right wing person running for the Republican Party plays Born in the USA as part of their campaign. And you're like, yeah, did you they hear misunderstand. the words? Did they you misunderstand. listen to the lyrics at all? <laughs> and so there's this like connection between sort of the rise of white nationalism and the kind of assumption that a working class white singer songwriter would speak for and to those people and the reality of what Sarfraz experiences when he listens to that music, which is someone who understands what it is to be an outsider. And I think I, I agree that the connection isn't always like explicit enough um, or isn't always clear. But I think that that's really what he's trying to do is sort of have this conversation about assumptions we make about people and about race and particularly this really complicated time in Britain's history. It's a time I'm really fascinated with in the UK. Like my parents are both English, Brennan, and I spent a fair amount of time there when I was a kid. And it's fascinating to me that like you know, in the 70s in cities, there were folks using like outhouses on housing projects because that was the level of destitution that was that had mm -hmm. permeated large parts of the UK in that time period. And I think that this book does a really good job of evoking, I guess there are moments in the vignettes where I felt like that got evoked really clearly. And so it, I appreciated this as kind of a story about moving through and past a difficult moment and like finding success and maybe that's why I, I maybe that's why I liked it so much more than you guys did I found it to be a really hopeful and uplifting but still really clear-eyed story hmm. yeah I think for me I ended up admiring the idea of the book more than I actually enjoyed the experience of reading it because mm. there were there were definitely standout pieces and Initially, I was quite taken and involved with 
Sarfraz's relationship with his father and really thinking about the immigrant experience and particularly second generation immigrants who are really indebted to their parents and wanting to make them proud and wanting to like really uplift the family and seize the opportunities that their parents don't have, but also struggling with, you know, feeling like you need to be beholden to tradition and not give away who you are in terms of identity. Like, I thought that was good. And then it just keeps coming back. Like there isn't anything new to those stories, even though we're talking about them in slightly different themes or topics. I just found that I was wishing that there was more of the kinds of things that you're talking about, Brenna, because I was actually very interested in the poverty and the class. And then as the book progresses to the racism, so the feelings that you feel as a darker skinned person living in England in the wake of things like 9-11 and the London bombings and the responses that you have to being even a public figure. All of that kind of stuff was really good. It just that there wasn't enough of it in there for me. I just just, just to piggyback on that, I, I agree because I, I will allow for the fact that I am a white person who's a citizen of my country and not an immigrant and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of immigrant narratives that really, really resonate with me and really appeal to me. But this one just felt re- kind of cold and distant. Like, I, I don't feel like it, like, on paper, it hit all the right marks. But I just don't know what it was interested in evoking to me emotionally. And it just never connected that way. That's so fascinating. I fully cried during some of the vignettes. Like, I, really? I found the book incredibly emotional. Yeah, I really did. I think... um you know, the Guardian review of it, uh, that like the the one that came out like right when the book came out, mm-hmm. makes the point that the book is segmented and compartmentalized and fractured because so is Sarfraz's identity. And so, you know, he has these like versions of himself that he performs in different areas of his life. And the, the book sort of follows that same kind of fractured and fragmented structure. Oh, hmm. And I guess you... you I, you either buy that or you don't. But yeah. <laughs> for me, it really worked. Like, I was deeply invested in his relationship, not just with his father, but with his mother and the ways in which he felt responsible to her, but also desperate to find his own life. And I was really interested in the narrative of the younger son and the way in which he sort of recognizes that there is a privilege that comes with being the younger son that he wouldn't have been able to see when he was just feeling like he wasn't his father's favorite, but that his ability to go out and be a broadcaster and live this very, like, quote unquote, British life while his brother is at home having a much more like, quote unquote, Pakistani life. I found to be a really interesting meditation, and I became really invested in that relationship, too. Huh. Yeah. See, for me, at least, like, what I felt in those scenes particularly, where he's like, oh, my sister couldn't have done this, my brother couldn't have done this, it feels like a very surface-level acknowledgement of it, and he doesn't really dive into it necessarily, for, again, for me, like, from my perspective reading it, it felt almost like he didn't care about their experience he was more like well i get to do what i want like sucks for them it's kind of cool uh, that we I read get to entirely do different books yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that no that's true um but the thing is here's the thing especially with the uh the structure wise i think that that might be the case of like you're very smart i'm sure the person reviewing it was very smart but i think you're doing a lot of work on the book's behalf yeah not on the emotional level the emotional level is just obviously based on who you are as a reader but as far as the structure i've read 
a million memoirs with that same structure. And I don't think that they're interacting with their subject matter other than, you know, being in that format. Like, you know, Talking to Girls about Duran Duran by Rob Sheffield is the exact same structure, except it's structured around 80s pop rather than Bruce Springsteen and it hops around his life. And it, I think it comes with the territory more than it is serving anything about this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that to be a very generous reading. I couldn't differentiate between the memoir and the journalist because this feels like a series of journalistic essays. I don't get as much of the personal pieces. Like, I do feel that coldness that you're talking about, Brendan, where it feels more like he's reporting about his own life as opposed to engaging with it fully. And one of my biggest struggles was just that feeling of the been there, done that, read that piece, particularly as I moved through the book, because it it felt like it was just treading the same ground to the point where I wondered if these were a series of different essays that he has put together from various pieces that he's written and then put them into a book without doing some proper editing to say, actually, I've touched on this about five times already. And that was what kept taking me out of it. I was like, you're reporting on your own life in a series of vignettes that are really overlapping without acknowledging that this is now being read as a whole book. And that's not to say, Brenna, I'm in no way trying to discount your experience or anyone's experience of like being emotionally impacted by this book. I think for me personally, the, the impact, or at least the way that this text gets to achieve the goals that it sets out for itself, I think the movie does succeed in a lot of places where the book doesn't. And in that, I can I can see like a, a much clearer approach to the the topics that you're talking about. I think the book is also tapping into a very particular history of sort of I don't know what the phrase is. I'm going to call it like personal pop culture journalism. Like this is clearly a book that comes out of the history of like Nick Hornby and mm. those kind of figures, like British dude lit figures who also work a lot in journalism, (laughs) frankly. Can we please coin that term, British dude lit? (laughs) But like, I mean, I think you either like it or you don't, right? Like I've read every single one of um, Nick Hornby's collections of essays, which do the same exact thing. Oh, you know what book this actually, you know what book this echoes deeply is Fever Pitch, which is Nick Hornby's Mm, football memoir. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's almost exactly the same kind of story, a sort of using a personal obsession as a way into thinking through a relationship with a father who seems sort of distant or absent. And I think, like, I think there's a whole heritage of this kind of storytelling that does tend to be pretty journalistic because it's a genre that has been dominated by, well, do journalists, right? Right. And I think that, like, a lot of people hate that. Like a lot of people don't read Nick Hornby or don't tolerate his nonfiction, for example. So I think I think it's definitely um, a style that either moves you for whatever reason or doesn't. And I definitely have always really loved pop music as a way into memoir and narrative. So maybe that's part of it too. Like I think that the book asks you to make a lot of the emotional connections yourself perhaps and you're either – invested enough in Sarfraz's journey to want to do that or you're not. And I guess that's probably ultimately where the book either succeeds or doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because I I also really like pop culture as an entree into a memoir, but I don't like spending that much time with straight teenage boys. So I think that was maybe <laughs> my roadblock. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, that is a little amusing, but uh 
I'm wondering, Brennan, because you raised it, why don't we transition to the film and talk about some of the creative decisions it's doing? Because it really is the same text, but also completely different. Yeah, it's super different. Still coming to my party tonight? Yeah, of course. Emma's mates are coming, and I know one who would be perfect for you. She's not fussy. Really? First day, start at the top and stay there. Stay away from the girls! I want to be a writer, but my family is stuck in another century. Writing isn't a job. I need you to do more. Make a wish, better. Kiss a girl and get out of this dump. Bruce is the direct line to all this true in this shitty world. Seriously, what does he know about our world? You should be listening to our music before you start getting confused and hating yourself. I listen to everything. I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt, everything I've ever wanted. My poems, they're not brilliant, but they're mine. You think that this man sings for people like us? But he talks to me. You cannot be serious, mate. Okay, so... Greetings from Bury Park is transformed into Blinded by the Light in 2019. It is directed and written in part by Gorinda Chada. And I feel like, Brendan, this is part of the reason you wanted to come on this episode, because I know that you are a huge Bride and Prejudice fan. Oh, I am. I love Gorinda Chada. And I think the reason I wanted to watch this movie is because of Bride and Prejudice, because she's made a career both out of talking about the South Asian experience mm -hmm. in the UK and she has really knocked it out of the park with a music-based movie so I was like hell yeah give me this movie when it came out in 2019. Yeah and folks if you aren't as familiar with Bride and Prejudice it is a strong recommend. The other famous text that she has made that gravitated to North America is Bend It Like Beckham. She also made a movie that could be on this podcast. She made Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging. Don't even think I know that. <laughs> I've read the books. I've read the books. Okay. I didn't okay. know I'd been I didn't know it was a movie. All right. Yeah, I don't think it got a big push, but it exists. She made it. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so the other writers, because there are two more, one of them is, as you mentioned, Brenna Sarfraz Manzur himself, as well as Paul Mayada Burgess. So uh in the cast we've got a lot of British folks, so I'm actually not as familiar with most of these names. We've got Vivek Kara as Javid, who is the transformed main character. We've got Kalvinder Gur as Malik, his father. Mira Ganatra as Noor, his mother. And then we've got Nell Williams as Eliza, his white girlfriend. Aaron Fagura as Roops, who we've not really talked about. That's his best friend who introduces him to mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen. And then we've got Dean Charles Chapman as Matt, his rock star neighbor, who in the film he is writing lyrics for. And Nikita Mehta as Shazia, his younger sister. And in the film, they drop the older brother. And he does have an older sister, but she basically doesn't have a function in the film. So uh, we're just really going to talk about Shazia. Mm -hmm. 
sorry, and final character is Haley Atwell as Miss Clay, the white savior English teacher. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. One of my favorite cameos uh, that we've done in the show in recent times, though, is Rob Brydon playing Matt's father, the guy who sells clothes on the market stall. Oh, yes. He's hilarious, and I adore him. <laughs> yeah, he's very funny. So I guess the big distinction here with Blinded by the Light is that, as you mentioned, Brenna, it is a fictionalized adaptation, but it's a pretty straightforward YA property. So the main thing is that this takes place over the course of about a year in Javed's life, and it's when he's entering into his sixth A class, or I'm just going to call it high school. Sixth form. It's the last year of high school. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he is going to a new school. That's where he meets Roops. He's uh, really starting to explore his own writing. He starts dating Eliza, and we get to have some conversations about why she is or isn't interested in him. And then he ends up winning a writing competition that allows him to go to New Jersey and experience everything to do with Bruce Springsteen. And his father does not die in the movie. Mm -hmm. So we get to have a bit of a fantasy. Everything worked out and my dad accepted me ending. So my understanding of the process here is that after Sarfraz Manzur lost his job at the Guardian, I think, or the Independent. Anyway, he had a, a consistent writing gig. He lost it around mm -hmm. 2018 when the market crashed. And he rewrote the book as a film at that point time yes. and then shopped it around so it's like the the core sort of adaptation and story was him and then basically Gurinder Chadha and Paul Medea Burgess kind of turned it into like a movie if that makes sense like they were sort of co-writers on his original kind of framing and I think it's important to know that because I think in many ways Blinded by the Light is the relationship story that Manzur wishes he could have had with his father. And so like he rewrites, you know, he rewrites so many things like his mother yeah. gets a whole bunch more agency, his father and he come to a happy conclusion where they sort of like find an understanding with each other. All these things that aren't possible in the nonfiction version of the story, mm -hmm. Manzur gets to do with the fictional version of his own life story. Yeah. And I've got a quote from Garinda Chatta who talks about why she ultimately took on this film. So she says, I make these films so that people like us are visible. People who are generally on the margins of the frame or in the background or the side characters. I try to put them in the center of the frame and then build the story around them to be as mainstream as possible and as universal as possible. And I definitely appreciate the sentiment and I think her heart is in the right place, but I will sort of take issue with those last couple of phrases, which is mainstream as possible and universal as possible. As much as I can understand why people like this movie, it's very feel good. It's very cute. I do feel like it's been so turned into the mainstream and so universal that anything that was even remotely interesting has been sanded off to become a very conventional YA film. It was also part of a weird moment of film, right? Because it came out, I don't know, like the same month as yesterday, oh, yeah. which is also a story about an Asian British teen's connection to belonging through pop music also <laughs> made by a superstar british director so it's like it was just a weird timing i think for this film as well to kind of know what it was doing i also kind of wonder what was in the water that these two films appeared in the same moment mm -hmm. it's a lot yes so i really like the movie joe <laughs> you are allowed to 
I thought it was super cute. If anything, I wanted there to be sort of more breakout singing, but I liked the moments where the musical numbers were kind of used to illustrate Javid's desire to be more than his circumstance. So whether it's singing to Eliza on the market stall with Matt's father as backup, which honestly made me laugh out loud, or the scene where he and Roops confront the white nationalists in the, well, I guess they didn't call them that then, the Mm -hmm. skinheads in the restaurant. Like there's this sense of kind of like empowerment and wish fulfillment through the songs that makes it like a fantasy because that doesn't happen in real life, but is also really... I don't know. I liked it. I found it really rewarding. It's a movie that made me smile. I really needed that. So it was good. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think that, you know, Gurinder Chada, she did capture the sense of what it's like to be a teenager discovering music for the first time and having it really open your your soul up mm-hmm. and just kind of... Mm-hmm pour meaning into you and you feel like I finally connected with art. This is my thing. We found it. And that kind of glorious exultation are the scenes where I think she's best. It's just, there's not a lot of them. Yeah. I definitely struggled with the musical segments because I felt like the movie either needed to go full musical and really embrace that or acknowledge how bizarre it is Like, regular people do not sing along with music without getting some very odd looks. And in this film, there's no consequences for that. And I appreciate what the film is trying to do with it, but it doesn't logically make sense in a very otherwise grounded narrative for me. So every time the musical bit started to play, I actually felt really taken out of the film because I didn't understand what it was trying to do anymore. It It is whiplash-inducing between the kind of domestic realism versus the bigger fantasy numbers, and I don't think it does enough to transition between the two. Mm-hmm. I do think both are more well-realized than what I got out of the book. Yeah, I, I think that mainstreaming and accessibility of the film, for me, it didn't work as well because it sands off some of those interesting pieces, but I can also see that this will actually work really well for a larger audience. Like, it's basically saying it doesn't matter if you don't like Bruce Springsteen or if you don't know anything about him. We're even going to illustrate the lyrics so that you can follow along and see how directly it correlates to a young person's experience as they're undergoing and navigating challenges. I didn't feel like those lyrical moments were holding your hand if you're not a Bruce fan. I felt like it was trying to embody the way that those lyrics were becoming Mm. kind of part of his personal canon more than anything. Yeah, it felt really uh, playful to me, like a visual representation of kind of the significance of the lyrics to him as opposed Mm -hmm. to guiding us, if that makes sense. I liked the Variety Review used the phrase that this is an unguarded drama and talked about it being like a very earnest story. And I think that that's exactly what I liked about it. And so for me, those moments of breaking into song were less jarring, I guess, because I sort of equated it to like the outrageousness of that teenage experience of obsession, right? And how you can find yourself with the windows down at a stoplight, like screaming the lyrics to your favorite song at the top of your lungs and not really caring what the what the ramifications of that are in the real world. And I, I felt like I got to live that for a minute when I was inside those moments in this film. And I, I really liked the, I guess it is earnestness. I guess it's the earnestness with which 
Javed is experiencing this, and so we're experiencing it along with him, maybe? Mm-hmm. Can we talk about all of the white savior stuff in this movie, though? Because <laughs> particularly when you think about who the creative team is and what they're trying to do, I found it weirdly uncomfortable every time it was like his older white neighbor is gonna save him Mm. by talking about how valuable his poetry is or like his band friend is gonna say yeah you know just keep pushing I believe in you and I was just like what is this doing in here yeah as a white person I am not the authority on this topic but it did feel like this was trying to be kind of a a dangerous minds-esque at Mm. points where it's like, wow, doesn't being a person of color really suck? I mean, and obviously talking about racism and talking about the struggles of of, of being an immigrant are, those things exist. Sure. But the, the positioning of the white savior in this story that's specifically centered around people of color, it kind of, to me, devalued some of what it was some of the thesis that it was supposed to have. Well, and I think it's a particular softening of what is happening in the book, which is that Sarfaz really does have to negotiate these multiple worlds and they are really cut off from one another, right? Mm -hmm. Like he can't talk to his dad about what goes on among his all white friends. And he's, he talks a lot about like this weird discomfort where his dad didn't want him to go to the school where all the kids from Indian families go. And yet his dad feels like he's disconnecting from his culture. And Sarfaz is like, I'm kind of trapped between these two experiences. And so the film really sands that off. And instead we have all these characters who are like, whether it's the girlfriend or the teacher or the neighbor, it's like, you can fit into British society. Look, mm-hmm. we're showing you that you can. And it's it's your fault that you're not. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And like if the right white person just explains this to Sarfraz's dad, it'll all be okay. Yeah. Which of course nothing like that happens in no. the book because there's absolutely no interaction with these folks. I mean, the deep sort of irony of the choice that his father makes to leave Bury Park is that they are now almost completely isolated and cut off from both their own sort of community that they built in Bury Park and the white society that won't have anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. And it is a bit jarring in the film because you basically have two kinds of white people. You have white saviors and yep. you have Despicable, hissable That's villains. it. <laughs> Little kids who will urine through your mail slot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, super gross, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I found it a little heavy-handed and overly simplistic. And honestly, my issues with the film, I can appreciate the earnestness. It didn't really resonate or connect with me in that regard. But like, there was just this one scene that really distills my big issues. So it's right after the Javed character has gone to get the tickets for Bruce on the day of his sister's wedding. And he has missed his father getting beaten by white supremacists in the street. And he comes back and there's a shot of him as he kind of forlornly walks towards the camera. And there's a giant poster of Margaret Thatcher talking about how it's like we're all in this together or like come together or something like that. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, this is so heavy handed. Come on. Like, I was honestly a little disappointed in Chada because it didn't feel like she trusted us. Mm, mm. I think that's a fair comment. I think that in general, 
Well, the story of community for me is, I know you guys both didn't like the book, but for me, the story of community is a lot less effective in the film than in the book. Um, And part of that is because there's no space to explain and explore sort of Mm -hmm. what Beery Park is and what the move away from Beery Park means. And like the other thing that happens in the book that I think is really helpful in demonstrating this is after the 7-7 bombings where those bombers all came from Luton and Sarfraz having to like negotiate what his hometown has come to represent to like all of Britain and there's no space for any of that in the film and so I think in general it's trying really hard to be sort of a commentary on British society but it doesn't have the space to do it so instead it's just like don't be the Margaret Thatcher skinhead, be the well-meaning white neighbor. And yeah, it's a bit flat. Yeah, and I I think that maybe that's coming from the impulse to make it a mainstream story. Like, I don't fully agree with Joe's, like, thesis of, like, mainstreaming the story has completely eliminated, like, all of the edges of it. But I do think that by mainstreaming it, it has become what it shouldn't have been, which is a movie explicitly about the relationship that the Pakistani people have to white people rather than to each other. Mm-hmm. Both of these texts, I feel like, do not fully function as immigrant narratives, but this one's maybe less. I think it functions better as the Bruce narrative and less as the immigrant narrative in pretty much a lot of levels. I think what the film's trying to do is to be a pretty straightforward YA coming of age romance with this Bruce Springsteen hook. Yeah. And then it's almost like it gets in over its head with setting it in Thatcherite Britain and all that that's going to have to represent in terms of like poverty and racism and how those things were functioning in that moment, which is not to say there's not poverty and racism now. It's just, you can't tell this story in Thatcherite Britain and not like talk about skinheads. Like that can't not be part of the narrative, but the flip side is that it almost drowns what the film is actually trying to be, which is a pretty straightforward YA coming of age romance. Right. Yeah. And I think, honestly, for white people, this movie feels like it was made for white people. Yeah, well, that's challenging because it's like all the stuff that's in there is stuff that is valid, except for, I would argue, the inclusion of a romantic narrative because that was never present in the book. No. Oh, I totally think that was like, I didn't kiss any girls in high school, but movie me is going to kiss this girl. And also, I grew up and married a white woman, so let's put this into my fantasy version. Yeah. My own white savior, right? Did you guys read the afterword? Did you guys have the book version that had the afterword? Yes. Did. Yeah. Yeah. He Ugh. very specifically frames his wife in these kinds of white savior terms that mm-hmm. clearly Still uncomfortable. transfers over into the, the film adaptation. Yeah. 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 Which is weird because it's a book that otherwise has no white narrative, no white saviors. Like that's not something that's happening in his actual life story. So to then take this like after the fact romance and like backfill it in as a motivating factor in the screenplay feels weird Mm -hmm. yeah it's chilling but yeah it's the thing of like i i I don't think that the content of the film is wrong largely it's just all in the wrong proportion like the film never finds its identity i mean i'd say this story in general never finds its identity in exactly what it's trying to do well Clearly, I don't know that we're going to be able to come to any kind of consensus. It just sounds like we took different things and appreciated different things from both of these texts. So I think it's interesting because I don't think we've ever had a text where we 
had such divergent readings. It's interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe it was the music. Maybe it was the boss. That's what you get by inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say that I am glad Andrew suggested this. I think it was a really neat departure for us to take a look at nonfiction to fiction as an adaptation. And problems with the film aside, if you are looking for something that's a little bit frivolous and you want to sing along with some Bruce Springsteen songs, like you can do worse for an afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Brendan and I are definitely in the minority because this has an 89% Rotten Tomato score. So clearly we are just the Debbie Downers. I was going to say, join me and the majority of dummies in loving this film. No, no. <laughs> it, it's okay to like a movie. There we go. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I just want, can I say two things really quick before we move forward? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. First of all, speaking of tropiness in this movie, one trope that kind of bothers me in movies is that whenever somebody has to give a speech they always like fold up their notes and just go off the cuff no <laughs> one ever no one actually actual does speech. yeah <laughs> and also i think that uh, speaking to the fact that this is kind of safra's manzor's fan fiction for his own life <laughs> i don't really like javed the character in a lot of ways no. I couldn't tell if it was the character or the kind of flatness of the actor, to be honest. It was, I was just like, oh, he is not my favorite part of this movie. Yeah, well, just in terms of like the pranks he gets up to with Roops, where they're like, we're gonna put Bruce Springsteen on the stereo and scream it and run around the halls of the school. And it's just like, that's not fun. That's just kind of, you're just being like a hooligan. You're just messing around. The only thing I liked about that, though, is that it, it unravels the station manager guy who's like, we already have an Indian show. And they're like, oh, oh yeah. we want a Bruce Springsteen show. That part made me laugh. You mean the boy George queer character that they can't acknowledge is queer? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that's all very complicated. And like, sure, like, yes, get revenge on racist people for microaggressions. And like, that is the point of that scene. But it's just like, you're also just kind of bothering everyone and just making yes. a mess. And that's kind of his instinct in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't, I don't enjoy this. I just don't like you all that much. He does have a bit of a flat effect and also a bit of a hangdog effect. That's kind of like, I wanted to like him more than I did. Yeah. I like him when he's singing. I think maybe that's why I like the singing moment so much. I liked it when his whole affect changes and he becomes really like connected to and committed to the moment, which pretty much only happens when he's singing. Hmm. I think I just wanted a movie about Shazia because I thought she was far more interesting and better portrayed. Oh, I ended up down this whole rabbit hole, Wikipedia rabbit hole about daytimers and the daytime oh, yeah. raves that British Indian kids go went to, go mm-hmm. to. I don't know. I don't think there's still a thing. That was fascinating. Yeah. I would like a whole movie about that and less of this, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and to come full circle, like just to show that I, I, I don't automatically reject this type of story. I would also like to add in another queer young adult novel that is covering very, very similar ground. It's about two uh, Bengali girls falling in love in Ireland. It's called Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating. And that I liked a lot more than, than this text. Okay. That title also sounds familiar. So I, I can't help but wonder if we've come across that at some point too. Huh. It's, it's, it's new. It's from this year. Okay. Hmm. Well, Brennan, you are always filled with good recommendations. <laughs> Thank you. Shall we do a quick round of YA bingo? We shall. Sure thing. Bingo! Not a good bingo. So, Brennan, as our guest, you get to go first. Joe always lets the guests go first, even if I really want to. Do you want to? 
No, don't <laughs> indulge her. <laughs> she gets everything she wants, Brennan. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I mean, musicality, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a good yeah, place yeah, yeah. to start. <laughs> um, I throw out stunt casting with Haley Atwell, perhaps? She, it's like a, it's I like a medium so. stunt. Yeah, so Brennan wouldn't understand why, but yes, <laughs> she's in the Marvel movies, Brenna. Oh, I think Rob Brydon is a is a Brenna. Get out of here. Don't cast for people who like British things. <laughs> <laughs> Not every British person is stunt casting, though. <laughs> no, just and not Brighton. in a British movie. <laughs> well, I still like it. Fine. Um, can the manic pixie dream person be Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would honestly kind of argue that the girlfriend falls yeah, into she that totally trap is. a little bit. She's perfect oh, yeah. in every way. Uh, I think that that's pretty much what I got. Okay, Brenna. I'm going to go with uh, good friendships for in the book. Starfaz and Roops. I love their friendship, actually, quite a lot. Yes. Um, I'm going to go with Rags to Riches story for Roop in the book. He becomes an investment banker, and he's oh, yeah. doing all right in life. Indeed, yeah. Um, I think a road trip for the American narrative, not the part where they go to America, but like how much ground they cover in America during that summer they're selling encyclopedias. I would mm-hmm. give that a road trip. Yeah. I think you have to do hollow friendships and romances for the film for, unfortunately, the friendship between Roops and Javid. One of the things I don't even understand is why Roops is also going to America. Like, that is never Absolutely explained. No. <laughs> oh, no. Any sense at all. Not a He's lick just of there sense. in the pictures. And, what? <laughs> I was like, what just happened? Um, so, yeah, that's me. Okay. I really think maybe the only other ones that I'll put in... You can quibble with this because a lot of the montages are also musicality moments, but I would say that there's a significant number of montages in the film. I'll take the montage for the writing montages. They're my favorite. I wish actual writing happened in a montage. (laughs) Right? So much faster, so much more efficient. Just put some music on, a little bit of a head bob, and the next thing you know, the essay's done. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. Uh, the only other one that I had was coincidental classes, because, of course, he stumbles into this writing class and manages to find a magical teacher who will basically do everything for him. Like, hey, I didn't get your permission, but I submitted your short story and then it won this national prize. Yeah. And yeah. the thing of like, this essay is about finding your identity. <laughs> yes. Every high school essay is about finding your identity. <laughs> And I'm going to add no details to you, by the way, about whether the plane ticket is paid for. Nothing. You'll learn nothing about any mm-hmm. of this. No, it just all will magically happen. You don't even need your father's consent. You can just yeah. leave and go to America. He has a plus one for his uh, prize winning trip to the con- <laughs> conference right. in New Jersey, question mark. I love mm-hmm. it. Thousands of students in the UK enter 10 win. Two of them are from this school. One of them isn't even in this class. And we're never going to mention that part. No, this is sheer <laughs> fantasy. And I, you either buy it or you don't, I guess. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, okay, well, that is a smattering, but sadly, not a line. So if you want to get a hold of us, let's say you really want to quote some Bruce Springsteen lyrics at Joe, for example. Joe, where <laughs> would they find you? Boo. Uh, you would contact me at Marimote, and that's the letter B. And Brennan, thanks so much for being on the show today. How do people get a hold of you if they want to? 
You can find me on Twitter at It's Raining Brands. You can also find I'm a contributing reviewer and podcaster at alternateending.com. All of the stuff on there is not me, but I am also there. Right. Awesome. <laughs> Represented, but not owning. Yeah. <laughs> And you can find me at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. If you want to get both Joe and I, you can use the hashtag HKHSPod or the Twitter handle at HKHSPod. And if you've got anything longer, like, for example, you're working on your book club reading and you want to share your thoughts on Please Ignore Vera Dietz by A.S. King, you can send those to HKHSPod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Joe, oh, oh. Yeah, uh-huh, yes. We're sticking with the immigrant narrative fish out of water storytelling next week when we revisit Never Have I Ever, yes? Yes, season yes. two. I can't wait. I'm excited. I'm excited and also, well, you know what I'm going to say, John McEnroe, mm-hmm. get out of this show. No one needs you here. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and if you're reading along with us, our next full-length book is a doozy. Joe has us reading both Shadow and Bone and Six of Crows to read alongside the Netflix series. So if you're keeping up with us, you should get started. They're quick reads, but there's a lot of pages. Indeed, yeah. They're, they're quite lengthy tomes. So thanks again, Brennan, for joining us. So great to have you on the show always, even though you disagreed with me, which is something I don't generally enjoy. No, and- I, I, look, I, I'm so sorry. I hate to disagree with you. and I, I, lo- I only want to disagree with Joe. So I, I messed right? up. Right? I said to Joe last night in a text, I was like, I don't like this. I don't like being ganged up on. I only like it when you are being ganged up on. But Look, anyway. our names share almost all the same letters. So I right? should have stuck with you. And I apologize. I'm just saying. Next time. Uh, until next time, I will see Gosh. you on the page (laughs) i will see you on the screen apparently ganging up (laughs) and i won't be here (laughs) we'll have you back brennan don't worry thank you (laughs) bye-bye bye